Did you know that within a decade, women will hold $30 trillion in investable assets? Yet somehow, only 19% of women reported feeling confident in selecting investments that align with their long-term goals. Our friends at InvestHer are out to change that. InvestHer Con is the number one premier conference for women in real estate, and it's happening June 2nd through the 4th in Austin, Texas. InvestHerCon is not just another real estate conference. It's a transformational experience focused on real estate investing, business strategies, and self-care tactics, all designed to help women take control of their financial futures. Gain the knowledge and skills you need to grow your portfolio and build a sustainable business, all while connecting with over 500 women who are playing at the same level. To learn more and to get your tickets, visit InvestHerCon.com today and use the code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. That's InvestHer, H-E-R, Con.com, promo code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. Use plain English, try to write it the way an eighth grader could understand it, and make sure you capture everything important best ever listeners i'm so excited to share today's sponsor with you it's eastern union funding and arbor realty trust if you're in the multifamily space you likely recognize these names but have you used them Uh, i'm guessing if you haven't then you probably know someone who has i can tell you personally we have used uh, mark belsky he is a point person at eastern union funding as a partner with us and he has helped us secure debt uh, for actually a deal we closed on this month. And we've worked with him. Um, in addition, my clients, my program, my consulting program have worked with him to successfully close on deals. Uh, when we were starting out, Ashcroft was starting out, we had somewhat of a track record, but we weren't fully as established with our investor network. I went to him and we secured some equity, $500,000 in equity to fund one of our deals. While he works with more institutional partners, he's uh, brought $200 million in equity over the last 12 months. He was able to help us out there and we built a relationship with him and Eastern Union Funding ever since. So if you need equity for your deal and you have a track record, then he's your point person. His number is 212-897-9875. If you need debt, then he partners up with Arbor on a lot of transactions. So if you're a multifamily borrower who wants agency or bridge debt, then that's the team to work with. Uh, We have worked with their team, both Eastern Union and Arbor, on deals. And people who have purchased our deals, purchased deals from us, have used Arbor, as well as my clients in my consulting program, they've used it. So this is a recommendation that comes from firsthand experience. And the last thing I'll say about uh, working with Mark Belsky at Eastern Union is that if you need a loan guarantor, but don't have that track record quite yet, then Mark can look at what you've, the deal you've got And assuming it checks out, he can make introductions to people he knows as potential loan guarantors for your deal. So debt, equity, and potentially loan guarantors. Uh, All you need, well, you need to find a deal, obviously. Um, But besides that, you know, the other main components of the deal they can help you out with. So talk to Mark Belsky. His email is mbelsky at easterneq.com. And his phone number, 212-897-9875. 
best ever listeners. How you doing? Welcome to the best real estate investing advice ever show. I'm Joe Fairless. This is the world's longest running daily real estate investing podcast. We only talk about the best advice ever. We don't get into any of that fluffy stuff with us today. Mark Roderick. How you doing, Mark? Pretty well. Thank you. How are you? I am doing pretty well as well. And well, best ever listeners, you recognize Mark's name because, well, one of the reasons might be because you're a loyal listener. Episode 614 titled How to Avoid Securities Fraud and Properly Raise Capital. That sounds important. So episode 614, if you're raising money, then go listen to that one. But we never got his best ever advice and never did a regular episode. That was a Skill Set Sunday episode. So today we're going to do a regular episode, a little bit about Mark as a refresher. His words, not mine. He's a very boring corporate and securities lawyer. I think those are your words, not mine. They are. They are, yeah. Okay. All right. Unless, unless my yeah, team very member, accurate. <laughs> my team member might have slipped them in just to play a trick on me, but okay, they're yours. Also, since the Jobs Act of 2012, he has spent all of his time in the crowdfunding space. He writes the widely read blog, Crowdfund. ATTNY.com, which provides legal and practical information for portals and issuers. And you can say hi to him at his company website, which is in the show notes, based in Philly. With that being said, Mark, you want to give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and your current focus? Well, it was a clear blue day when I was born, Joe. Uh, <laughs> do you want me to start there? We could fast no, forward a little I, bit. <laughs> yeah, fast forward a little bit, like to today. So I have always represented entrepreneurs and their businesses, including tons of real estate developers. And in that regard, of course, real estate developers are always looking for money. So that's one of the things that I've always represented folks raising capital. So when I saw the crowdfunding act on the horizon, I realized this was going to be the most consequential law of my career. And indeed, it has turned out to be. So ever since then, for the last five years, I spend all of my time in the crowdfunding space. Crowdfunding is still probably 90 plus percent real estate. So I spend 90 plus percent of my time doing real estate crowdfunding of various kinds. So that's my background. I'm going to take it from a direction a little bit different. So instead of thinking about it from you call it a real estate developer. So basically, I believe you're referring to the general partner, the syndicator who's putting the deal together. That's who you usually work with. But what I want to do is I want to look at it from the passive investor standpoint. So from a passive investor standpoint, when a sponsor reaches out to me about an opportunity, from a passive investor standpoint, what should I make sure that he or she has in place so that everything's on the up and up? Well, probably the most important thing is a successful track record. A person, and I want to say a guy, even though real estate is a very male-dominated industry, but a person with a successful track record would be the place to start for sure. A new person on the block who's never done a real estate development before, if he's your brother, maybe, or if you have some reason to believe that that development's going to be successful. But if we're talking about in generalities, someone with a track record who is doing a deal that is consistent with his or her track record. So if you have a person who's spent 20 years doing 
successful multifamily projects, and he's doing another multifamily project. That's certainly the place where I would start. And then you want to make sure, of course, that the project has financing and all that kind of stuff. But track record, you invest in people. Track record, got it. I asked the poor question based on what I was intending to ask. What I intended to ask is from a regulatory standpoint, what should the passive investor look for to make sure that the sponsor is adhering to whatever they need to adhere to so that it's actually security and they're not getting bamboozled? Well, that's an interesting question because (laughs) from the most cynical perspective, the investor doesn't care. So if we're talking about securities laws, and your question is, how does an investor know that the sponsor is complying with the securities laws? If the sponsor is not complying with the securities laws, there's no downside to the investor. In fact, there's a potential upside, which is if the investor loses money, then he or she has the right to sue the sponsor if the sponsor didn't comply with the applicable securities laws. The investor doesn't get in trouble, only the sponsor gets in trouble. Now, that is a cynical and short-sighted view of the situation because my experience is that if a sponsor isn't complying with the securities laws, then he or she probably isn't doing a lot of other stuff right either. So to now actually try to answer your question, the sponsor should be able to show me as an investor, should be able to explain to me how the offering is being conducted, which securities law cubbyhole the sponsor's relying on. Certainly, I wouldn't expect the sponsor to be an expert on securities laws. I would expect the sponsor to have a lawyer who knows something about securities laws. And I would expect the sponsor to be able to give me some good-looking, professionally prepared documents that illustrate that the sponsor knows what he's doing from a legal perspective. Because again, if he or she doesn't, that's not a good sign overall. So the sponsor should be able to say, yeah, we're doing this offering under Reg D, for example. That would be a typical thing. Or this is a Reg A offering. And the sponsor's not going to know all the details of what that means. But at least it allows the investor to probe further. Got it. Okay. That's helpful. So in terms of the good-looking, professional, prepared documents, what specifically, and I'm sure it depends, but maybe you can go through a couple scenarios, should those documents be? Well, in a typical, professionally well-done offering, there are three documents. One is an operating agreement or an LLC agreement for the deal, if it's an equity investment, or a promissory note, if it's a loan. And, you know, it should be more than two pages long. The second document is a so-called subscription agreement, or I refer to them as investment agreements. It's a document that the investor signs to actually make the investment. And then the third document, you don't always see it, but you usually see it, certainly in a larger kind of deal, is a disclosure document. That's the generic term, also called a PPM for private placement memo. And that's the document that describes the deal, hopefully using plain English and without a huge amount of legal boilerplate, and includes all the 
bad stuff, the underside of the deal. So when the sponsor first pitched you the deal and they showed you this PowerPoint with how the new building is going to look when it's done and all the beautiful people walking around and so forth, that's all the good stuff. The disclosure document tells you all the real stuff and all the risks. Well, we don't have our approvals yet. Well, we don't have financing in place yet. Well, all these things. So the disclosure document, if done properly, is a very, very important document. And those three documents are what you would expect to get. If the sponsor says, well, we didn't do a disclosure document, that wouldn't necessarily be a deal breaker. It's sort of an alarm bell. Hmm, well, why didn't you? It's not necessarily a deal breaker, but in most professionally done deals, that's what you would see. What would be the reason why, and you might have to speculate here, that the sponsor wouldn't do a disclosure document, but people do invest in the deal because of the reason given. So I guess my question is, what would be the reason given by the sponsor that's somewhat logical for not doing a disclosure document? And it is done. Lots of times, a deal will get done by a sponsor without a disclosure document. If indeed it is the same kind of deal the sponsor has done two dozen times before, and the investors have invested with the sponsor two dozen times before. So there's a level of trust. This is another not cookie cutter because no real estate deal is cookie cutter. But if there has been a level of trust established in the relationship between sponsor and investor, then that is okay. That doesn't say anything bad. Lots of times, as you certainly know, and your listeners certainly know, in very small deals, the developer, one, may not have knowledge of what the securities laws require, may not have a lawyer who has a real estate lawyer, but not someone who knows about securities, and or either can't afford it because a disclosure document is the most expensive part of the documentation, or just doesn't want to do it. And if you're the investor and you say, well, you know, it really makes me uncomfortable, you don't have a disclosure document, and the sponsor says, okay, well, I'm going to go over to Gail over here because she'll invest without one. And my response is, okay, be be my guest, go talk with Gail. So it is usually some combination of those things. On the good side, there's a relationship, there's a trust, there's a track record. On the bad side, we don't know about the requirement or we know about it and we just don't care. Does that open up more liability for the sponsor if they don't have the PPM but they have the operating and the subscription agreement? Yes, it opens up hugely more liability. So without going into a whole thing about all the ways that sponsors can be liable to investors, the most likely way that they can be liable is if they lied to investors. Oh, you told me you already had your approvals. Now, of course, this all this only happens if the investors lose money. We have the kind of real estate market we've had for the last eight years where it just goes up and then all this becomes academic. 
So an investor loses money and suddenly his memory conflicts with the memory of the sponsor. The investor says, you didn't tell me that. You told me we already had approvals. You told me that retail space had already been leased, all kinds of things. And the purpose of a disclosure document is so that when the investor says, oh, you didn't tell me you didn't have zoning yet, can pull it out and go, okay, well, actually, Joe, here on page 21, it actually says we don't have zoning yet. So that's the whole purpose of the disclosure document to protect the sponsor from claims like that. If you don't have a disclosure document as a sponsor, you are leaving yourself wide open to all kinds of claims by investors, of course, with the benefit of hindsight at that point, that you were untruthful with them. And if you were untruthful, you're liable. You're personally liable to give the investors all their money back. So that's a big risk. So that's what the disclosure document is all about. When passive investors receive the prepared documents, an operating agreement, a subscription agreement, and a private placement memorandum, should they forward that to their attorney to look at? And if so, what should they advise that attorney to comment on? Ideally, Yes, they should. But the second part of the question is super important. What should they advise the attorney? The individual passive investor should not expect that their own attorney is going to rewrite all those documents or is even going to renegotiate significant parts of the deal. Like, let's say the deal has a 7% prepped with a 30% promote. The investor's lawyer should not, in my opinion, be trying to say, well, you know, it really should be a 7.5% PREF and a 20% PROMOTE. That's not the purpose of the review. There are two things that the investor's lawyer should be looking at. One, do the documents accurately reflect what the investor thinks the deal is? So if I'm the lawyer in that position, that's my question to my client. What do you think? this deal is. You tell me what the deal is, and then I'm going to tell you whether the documents do that. And second, and I probably should have put it first in terms of importance, the absolutely most important thing is that the investor does not have personal liability. So let's say the investor goes to the lawyer and says, I want to invest $25,000 in this deal. The absolutely most important role of the lawyer is to ensure that the investor's liability is limited to losing his $25,000 and that there's nothing in the documents that in any way, there's no capital calls, for example. Well, you put in 25 now, but we can ask you for more money later. Or the structure of the deal is such that the investor could have personal liability for a bank loan or anything like that. So those are the two hugely important things. And that's what the lawyer's role should be limited to, in my opinion. Is that a real estate lawyer or should they hire a securities attorney? Doesn't have to be a securities lawyer. Probably not a real estate lawyer, just a regular boring corporate lawyer, really. (laughs) Another Um, boring lawyer. (laughs) Another boring lawyer. Just someone who knows how to read contracts, basically, and in particular knows how to read operating agreements or limited partnership agreements, but it's not a super strange specialty. Any business lawyer should be able to review the documents with those two things in mind. 
When you speak in seminars or you speak in front of a group, what's a couple typical questions that you get asked? Well, some funny responses to that, but it depends <laughs> on what the group is. I often speak to groups that include real estate developers or the owners of crowdfunding portals. Certainly, a question that I get asked a lot by real estate sponsors there are always two questions in the first conversation. One is, does this work? Can I really raise money online in the crowdfunding space? And the answer is yes. And second is, is there any special liability that I am taking on by raising money online versus offline? And the answer is no. So those are the two main questions. There's always questions about the technicalities of verifying that investors are accredited and how much of a pain in the neck it is and dealing with lots of individual investors. I get asked by investors and reporters, what are the rules for investing online and what things should you be careful for? And I always say, if you're investing online, only invest through a reputable portal. Don't make your first investment just with some stranger on some website that you found. So those are kind of the questions that I'm asked most frequently. And you gave the answers too. So I did. Yeah. yeah that was for free. Even, yeah. <laughs> we all appreciate that. Based on your experience in securities law, what is your best advice ever for, we'll say, passive investors who are looking at opportunities? Well, I will first give the advice that I just gave. Go to the best real estate crowdfunding sites and only invest there. The second thing I would say is unless you're really a real estate expert yourself and know how to distinguish a good multifamily deal from a not as good multifamily deal, and I'm not that expert, and I've been representing <laughs> developers my whole career. But the point is, build your own mutual fund of deals. If you start out saying, I want to invest $100,000 in online real estate, don't invest 100000 in one deal. Pick five and or buy one of the very high quality real estate investment trust REIT products that are being offered, again, on the best portals. Don't buy one with a 12% load from a broker. Go online and buy one of these very high-quality REITs, which consist, of course, of pools of assets, so you're not limited to a single asset. So go with quality and diversify. I think that's pretty good advice. I think that's pretty good advice, too. On that note, we'll go into the lightning round. You ready for the best ever lightning round? Well, I guess I am. I know you are. First, though, a quick word from our best ever partners. Do you need debt for your deal, equity for your deal, or maybe a loan guarantor to help you get qualified for the financing? Talk to Mark Belsky. His number is 212-897-9875. That's 212-897-9875. His email is mbelsky at easterneq.com. Have you heard about the latest podcast for entrepreneurs called Tough Decisions? Listen to Dan and Danae Hanford as they interview successful people from around the world about tough decisions as entrepreneurs. Visit toughdecisions.net and be sure to subscribe to their free weekly entrepreneurial email 
That's toughdecisions.net. All right, best ever book you've recently read? Best ever book I've recently read? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. It wasn't a real estate book. I'm reading a great biography of Joseph Stalin right now. All right. Does that qualify? Absolutely, if it's the best one you've recently read. What's the best ever challenge you've solved as a securities attorney? Boy, that is a great question. What is the best challenge that I've solved? I think I've solved or gone a large way towards solving, making securities offerings easier to understand and less expensive. That has been my goal since the beginning of this industry. It'll never be completely solved, but I think I've taken really big steps in that direction. It is less expensive now than it used to be, and the way I do them, I hope that ordinary investors can understand what they're getting into, and I think that's very important. How do you walk the fine line of removing some of the boilerplate words in order to make it more common sense and easy to read versus increasing liability as a result of that? Great question. You should do a show, Joe. You ask good questions. <laughs> so the two actually go together. The way I do it is typically I just rip out everything that's there and start fresh. Legal boilerplate is like barnacles on ships. They never go, they never get smaller. <laughs> it just grows and grows and grows and grows. So you get these ridiculous legal documents that no lawyer ever subtracts. They only add, well, what about this? And you end up with things that are so unreadable that I believe they increase liability because no one could possibly understand them. So I typically, with all my documents, I have just started fresh. I've been doing this a long time. I know what's important. I know the kinds of things that actually happen out there in the real world. So the answer is use plain English. Try to write it the way an eighth grader could understand it. And make sure you capture everything important. That's why I call myself a boring corporate lawyer, because I just take great pleasure in doing that and writing things that are understandable and clear, but also legally effective. And it really does usually start with just ripping out what's there. Best ever way you like to give back? One, on a day-to-day -day basis, people call me. I have a very visible internet presence and someone called me today for example a lawyer called me represents a broker dealer getting into the crowdfunding space and just needed advice that happens all the time and i just give the free advice i somehow feel as if that is part of my role in this industry which has been so good to me that i give back i just provide free advice to hundreds and hundreds of people and I feel good about that. I do feel that in the scheme of things, I'm sort of drunk the Kool-Aid about the social benefits of crowdfunding and democratizing capital and bringing capital to the masses and great deals to the masses. And I think it's really, really valuable. And I hope when we look back a few years from now and we say, wow, that was really a good thing. And I can say I helped in some small way. I helped build that. So that makes me feel good. Love it. How can the best ever listeners get in touch with you? 
Well, lots of different ways. They can go to my blog, which I guess can people see a yeah, we'll have a, a link, link on but, the screen. But, yeah, we'll have a link in the show notes. But what you can mention the URL too again. Yeah, it's www crowdfund spelled the way it sounds, all one word, and then a t t n y dot com. Or they can type my name in Google, Mark Roderick, crowdfunding lawyer, and they will easily find me and shoot me an email. Awesome. Well, hey, Mark, this was a fun conversation and educational, and those are the best kinds where you learn and you also have fun. I love how we talked about the perspective of the passive investor and what to look for. So took a different slant on things, three things that it should have in place. Well, actually, higher level, you want to make sure that the sponsor knows what security law is being used Maybe ask for their lawyer reference, although if you have the legal documents, which should at least include the operating agreement, the subscription agreement, and the PPM, it will have their attorney's information in there, so you'll be able to see that. And you talked about many other things from a passive investor standpoint, as well as we touched on some from the sponsor standpoint. So thanks for being on the show. Hope you have a best ever day. Enjoyed it, and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you so much, Joe. Nice talking to you as always. Have you heard about the latest podcast for entrepreneurs called Tough Decisions? Listen to Dan and Danae Hanford as they interview successful people from around the world about tough decisions as entrepreneurs. Visit toughdecisions.net and be sure to subscribe to their free weekly entrepreneurial email. That's toughdecisions.net.